Welcome back to Business and Art South Africa's Assembly Podcast Series, presented in partnership with British Council South Africa. The COVID-19 elimination of gatherings, festivals and other variations of close human interaction has magnified the vulnerability of the creative sector, exposing a deep need for more sustainable models to support artistic and cultural activity globally. In this episode, BASA CEO Ashraf Joadin facilitates a cultural intelligence Q&A with Professor Andrea Rurale from Universita Bocconi, focusing on data, research and thinking creative sector funding strategies for our current context. Hi, I'm Ashraf and Prof, it's really great to meet you in person, albeit virtually. Uh, so let's get right to it. Um, you've conducted research projects with some major enterprises. Now, on a global scale, do you feel that research into the creative sector is used effectively for actionable outcomes? What are your thoughts on that? No, the answer is definitely no. In the sense that uh, you do research, typically the research is something that is abstract, not applied to a context. This is the pure research. When we come to the applied research, so researching on theaters, museum, in the the situation of uh, the cultural field, cultural institution, we, we realize that uh, uh, very, very rarely the research is, taking, is taken into strong consideration in order to define the actual strategy of the cultural institution. This is because, and this is not necessarily a mistake or a, or a problem, uh, this is actually another uh, outcome of uh, the dualism that is present in any cultural institution so far. So the fact that uh, on one side uh, we have the necessity of run effectively a business, a business that is profit or non-profit is not important, and uh, on the other side uh, the uh, role of theater and museums in terms of culture generation, production, stimulation, uh, creation of identities, And uh, uh, all the time we put together and put one against the other, these two elements in a never-ending dualism. The the result is that uh, we assist not in a sort of of cooperation, but we are assisting uh, to a fight, to a struggle. Because uh, if you are confident you have an experience with a theater, a museum or a festival, the creative director, the curator of the museum, the, the artistic director of the, of the theater or the, the, the curator of the festival is interested in working, maybe most of the times uh, within a budget, in creating something. But what is creating, what is putting on a stage in a theater, not necessarily is led by the customer preferences, the audience preferences. And uh, we can argue that if you don't take into consideration the customer preferences, so what the people want to see when they enter in a theater, uh, you have always the risk that you're going to put on stage something that is not uh, actually effective in the sense of uh, audience uh, development, uh, um, uh, audience uh, present uh, in a performance. Uh, And we have evidence, uh, very, very uh, concrete, in... uh, in, the, uh, in a, any theater where uh, you have a creative director decide uh, the season, the program, and, uh, uh, or a museum, and a con- consider the contemporary art, the Biennale di Venezia. 
the curator of the single pavilions don't have to show what the people want, but at the same time, you need to build the relation between institution, Biennale, and the audience in order to attract those customers, those stakeholders in terms of uh, funds, those institutions in terms of endorsement, uh, in order to have uh, an, uh, the, the, the cultural project effective. Uh, this leads us to consider uh, the difficulties of applying research into the art field. Because there is a sort of vain, soul perspective that uh, it's in, in the DNA of, uh, uh, of culture and art, which is the element of the creation. And uh, whenever you talk to, with an artist uh, and you want to force, because actually it's a, a sort of force, uh, him or her to produce something that maybe will sell, maybe will be liked, maybe will be uh, put in a gallery, in an art gallery, but it's not what it's coming out from, uh, from the, uh, his genius, his genius idea, uh, you act a sort of, uh, you, you act in a, violent, in a violent way. And this is the extreme uh, way to answer to your questions. It's difficult to research in the art, yes because most of the time you deal with cultural institutions that didn't, that haven't sold yet this delicate equilibrium. The delicate equilibrium is an equilibrium that the more we move to young generation, new generation of director, new generation of superintendent, and more management-oriented institution, so uh, the American background, so US museum and theater in US, um, what happens also in Germany, uh, it's something that uh, is possible to have. But when you go back in the origin of culture, and I'm very familiar with what happens in Italy and in Europe in a way, uh, you have uh, this struggle that is very, very difficult to, um, to be sorted out. In Pompeii, the big archaeological park, there was a new, it was the name, the new director, it's a German, great researcher of 41, I think, years old, the community of archaeology in Italy uh, opposed to this uh, appointment because he doesn't have enough um, academic, in a way, uh, background in order to administer a museum or an archaeological park because they consider him too much oriented versus demand. And this is the reason why researching in the art on one side is very difficult, but on the other side is absolutely challenging because talking with this key creator, talking with people that spend the entire life on developing, I don't know, in India, the Katak dance, and you need to help them in transforming the tradition of the Katak music into something that is understandable, sellable, and uh, uh, communicated properly all over the world, so with proper structures, it's very challenging and very entertaining also. I think that you've answered that question in great detail and it segues me quite nicely to the next question because I feel like your answer really speaks to the traditional arts space and increasingly certainly from a business and arts South Africa's perspective, we are seeing individual artists partnering with really big business uh, we have young artists like Karaba Poppy, who is partnering with Nike Karaba, having done the um, 
the, the, the murals on the, on the on Soweto Towers. And yeah, she's now being, being worn by superstars in, in the States. So I think the big business is understanding what the, the challenge that you're talking about. And I think that they're doing research, which is not necessarily made as, as easily available to the sector as perhaps what the sector could access through the academic sphere. But certainly there's an element when a Nike partners with a Carabo Poppy that one starts to think that there's an element of cultural marketing happening. Now, this being the form of content marketing, which showcases culture to help an audience get to know a brand, to give a brand personality by associating with particular artists and creatives. I mean, there are other ways, uh, like a, a big soap manufacturer um, offering free bars of soap to people in rural India and then shooting a video around that. So put it another way, cultural marketing sees brands promote their products to people from different cultures or demographics. But in your view, when we are applying those kinds of cultural marketing tactics, is that really about the alignment of the brand's core values with the consumer's needs or really outright cultural appropriation? Well, I think that... Um... Uh, in a way, the process of this, uh, the, the application, the marketing application to the context of the art can lead to element of branding, for sure. Uh, Elements uh, that are really, really, really important for the brand, for extensions. You mentioned, for example, what happens uh, with Nike and uh, uh, Carabo, Carabo Poppy. The... Um, uh, that is present also in, with Coca-Cola, for example. In, in this example, in this, in this situation, is an artist that represents what? The identity of a country, okay? Contemporary identity. And uh, uh, something that is perceived as uh, something absolutely global, Nike, Coca-Cola, uh, thanks to the art, or an art expression, go back to local. And uh, in a way, this is actually uh, the, the basic uh, approach of international marketing, the dualism between the opposition between doing it global or doing it local. You have something that is all present all over the world and uh, has a, a sort of difficulty in being accepted in local communities. This is the case of South Africa, but it's the same situation of Coca-Cola in China or uh, the shampoo uh, L'Oreal uh, in Brazil, uh, they need to adapt, thanks to marketing communication, their, uh, their strategy in order to be perceived properly in, in the country. And therefore, art, most of the time, is an asset, is a, is a tool, more than an asset, is a tool for company to reach this, this kind of element. So the appropriation in a local community. And this is why this happens, because art is uh, moving, is uh, uh, the first representation, the first application of what in marketing is called experiential marketing. So it's uh, the first representation, the first example of uh, a product that is not purchased because we need to do it. We buy shoes because we need to have shoes when we walk. And then we buy expensive shoes because we want to appear in a particular way, but there is an element of functionality at the beginning. You don't need to go to a theater. You don't need to uh, buy a painting or uh, assist to a performance of katak dance or tango in Argentina. And so it's something very emotional where the emotions are playing a role. 
because of this reason, the connection that is established between the consumer through his brain and uh, actually his emotion versus the product, the artistic product, is something that is very, very strong. You can like it or not like it. But because it moves on the emotional aspect, on the emotional chords in a way, those are the chords that Coca-Cola and Nike, in the example that we made, uh, will never be able to, be, to reach. This is the reason why artists consider in the luxury management, there is a huge amount of research in luxury management. Art, considered, art is considered a sort of a way to express not only the, the richness, but also a richness aware of the beauty. Uh, you don't buy element to show off, but you buy something with a taste. And if you are unsure about having your own taste and to show off your taste, you have a sort of anchor point, a point of reference in an artwork. And this is the reason why all the important Maison, Cartier, Chanel, Louis Vuitton, Prada, are in a way contaminating their um, brand identity, so the way they want to be perceived uh, with the element of art. Going back to the, 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 the straight question you asked, the marketing process uh, and uh, uh, how to apply marketing. We have plenty of possibility to use marketing into the art. What I think is the first step, but is also the approach that will last, can last forever, is putting in the mind of the curator, the artist, the approach of management, analysis, strategy, performance. You cannot decide what to do ever if you don't have a proper analysis. If you run a festival and you don't know who are your customers, who are your artists, who are the stakeholders, who are where you are, you will not be able to go anywhere. You can try to go in some places where you can have a vision. You can have a mission that allow you to reach the vision. But if you don't have the analysis before, the strategy will be completely risky. This doesn't mean that necessarily you give the customer what the customer wants. We are not talking about uh, uh, producing, uh, uh, I don't know, toast or uh, uh, commodities. There is a huge amount of, uh, of request of a particular product. I increase the amount of product in order to satisfy the, the, the demand. It's not that. But if you are not aware, for example, what happens in La Scala Theater now with COVID? Uh, La Scala had a, a season that is crowded with uh, activities that are in a way blockbuster. We cannot say blockbuster in La Scala, but uh, La Traviata, the traditional opera. You know? And then there is uh, some kind of opera that is uh, specifically produced for the La Scala, for the increasing of uh, new production, new dissemination of content, new artists, new conductors, and so on. Well, La Scala, before the COVID, uh, was is still in the center of Milan. What is the kind of tourist in the center of Milan? Most of the time, is a business tourist. Nowadays, Milan, after the Expo 2015, is getting more important and popular. But basically, we are not talking about Rome. We are not talking about Florence. So there is people that is coming here for business, for the fashion, and then they visit museum, they visit the theater, because it's the most important brand in Italy, known abroad, apart from uh, Ferrari. And so the season was created, calibrated on the 
kind of tourist, kind of audience that was the one in La Scala. So people that is uh, relatively rich can afford coming to La Scala and see something not necessarily very heavy, look in the beautiful theater, paying 150 euro for a ticket and then go back to their own country. What happened? And while the, uh, the subscriber and the, people, the local people of Milan like me typically is used not to go to La Scala to listen to Traviata or to watch the Traviata. They go to see, uh, to watch a new production or a concert because it's not something that we're not interested in the blockbuster uh, opera. COVID implied the fact that there are no more tourists and the customer, the, 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 the customer of La Scala are only the resident. La Scala decided for a while to put online, instead of uh, in a physical situation, uh, and also in, 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 uh, in, in real life when it was possible, the same season that was planned for a different kind of audience. And they had to realize that there was a shift, a change to create that they did. But this was present only on the empirical evidence of the result of the ticket office. If instead you plan your, your, um, your performances, your season, based on, on what's, uh, uh, what is actually the customer preferences, and uh, there is something like a critical incident like uh, the COVID, you can immediately shift because you already predict what's happening after this shutdown. And so you can react better versus the situation that is happening on the market. Obviously, we're talking about La Scala and we're talking about a situation that is pandemic and nobody could predict. And we are actually living day after day in hoping that this nightmare will, uh, will be sorted out. But this is another example of how analysis, strategy, and performance, because it's important also the performance, once you decide what to do, the artist is also uh, in a situation of thinking how to measure the result of what he put on, on stage. Doesn't need to be money, cash, or tickets sold. It can be the diffusion of uh, education and versus the school or the awareness, the awareness of uh, the Katak dance that I mentioned before, or uh, the awareness of the South African artist in the, uh, in the Nike, uh, in the Nike product, the new product line. But if you don't state before what will be the measurement of the performances, you will not apply analysis, strategy, and performance, which is actually, to me at least, the basic steps of introducing management, particularly, and definitely marketing, into the cultural fields. I think that's a really fantastic insight and really great segue to the next question, which is about your publication, Managing the Cultural Business, Avoiding Mistakes, Finding Success. Uh, some of the chapter titles in the publication are A Call to Revise Cultural Business Management, Cultural Business Models, The Mistake of Obsolition, Strategic Thinking in the Arts, The Mistake of the Missing Strategy, and Agile Management in the Arts, The Mistake of Over-Improvisation. So with this publication, uh, yourself and your co-editor and the 22 academic contributors wanted to revise manage the managerial vision of key processes that constitute every arts and cultural organization. Can you share with us a little bit more about the intention behind this publication and who it is for? 
Well, the publication, well, I, I, I direct, I, I, I teach marketing, in particular consumer behavior, and I, my study are in the emotions, the role of pleasure in the, uh, in the consumer behavior. And as I said before, this stream of experiential marketing started in the field of the art, because it's the first example that you can uh, consider when you say, I'm going to buy an experience. Art is an experience, music an experience, a painting an experience, and so on. Um, then in my university, I was called to direct a new program, a new program, it's the sixth year now, a, co a master in arts management and administration called MAMA, that is uh, referring, we have a lot of courses in cultural management uh, in the graduate and undergraduate, like many other universities. But in Bocconi, we decided to um, explore a, a new market that I understood was very, very, very interesting. Because for example, I studied always uh, economics and management, and uh, I wanted, my, my dream in the past was to be an oboist. I played the oboe, and I wanted to be an oboist in an orchestra. Of course, the oboe are one or two only in an orchestra, so there is also a scarcity of resources there. Uh, and therefore the competition is high. I was not so proficient. And uh, I realized very soon that, uh, well, it was a dream. I liked playing the music, but uh, I will never become, I would never become uh, the soloist. But uh, I, I wanted to be involved in that field. So listening to music, uh, uh, watching beautiful things, uh, architecture and so on. And I understood that what I could do, because I, I studied business administration, what I could do was at the beginning offer for free uh, my activities, uh, I was a solicitor, in cultural fields uh, in order to restructure in the budget. But because it was connected with the art, for me it was a dream because I, now I'm 45, but uh, when I was 20, 21, I, I really was living a dream because I was, had the possibility to enter in a beautiful museum looking at the museum alone because uh, I had the meeting with the director restructuring the budget or uh, reorganizing the governance, whatever. I understood that, that uh, this is the market that we had to explore. So people that studied a lot of humanities, people that uh, we have student, uh, last year we had a student that was, uh, had a PhD in art history, particularly a pa Flemish painting between 1670 and 1690. That, uh, well, it, it's, it's very niche or uh, a person that studied viola, not violin, viola, and uh, another one that uh, studied a lot, uh, not archaeology, generally speaking, but Etruscology. At Etruschi are the population in Tuscany, so not in, in Italy, in the middle of Italy. So between Roman and, uh, the mid Roman and Greek, there are also the Etruscan, so this population. And they understand, like me and as an oboist, that they probably will never become a proper curator, proper artist, or people that is doing contemporary art. They know that they are artists in the DNA, but they don't know how to make be perceived as to be an artist. Well, to be at the end, uh, we decided to organize this course that teach the basic, the fundamental, of the most important subject that are relevant function that are important for people that is doing with the art, a festival organizer, um, an operator on education in museum, or the artistic director of a theater, teaching the fundamentals, allowing them to build 
their knowledge and then trying to uh, be those person, the art manager that are keen for the art, but passionate for the art, but they realize they want to be trained as a manager. And so this uh, book started with, uh, is consists of uh, some of the academics that I know personally and some others that are teaching in my master that uh, before entering in the faculty of the master, they have been asked by me to develop research, we don't know, fundraising, but not fundraising generally speaking, but funding and fundraising in the art, or uh, uh, organization, governance, people management, not generally speaking, but in the art, in order to have a concrete and practical um, experience and knowledge that uh, is useful for them in order to go back to their market. We have plenty of students coming from abroad, they start in Italy for one year, one year and a half, and then they go back in their own country. I mentioned the Kataki music. A person that is a, a dance teacher and wants to bring the, the and she realized that the Kataki music is in, in danger because it's a tradition like tango in the past that has the risk to be disappeared in the future. Therefore, she wants to claim UNESCO to protect this kind of dance. But she does, doesn't have the, the, the structure, the, the, the idea of writing a project. And this is what we teach. After five years of experience of this master that has a huge amount of collaboration over the world, uh, I asked those people to update their research in those fields and presenting not the arts management as the best practice, because many cultural institutions, all the cultural institutions most of the time are excellent in a specific point. There is no one that is perfect in everything, but some of, most of them have element of excellence among their activity. I asked them to develop this, uh, this 22 chapter, uh, this 11, sorry, chapter, dedicated to the, the mistakes. Fundraising is not only a matter of fund, fundraising is a matter of engagement. And the general structure of this of this book that is a, a sum up in the in the in the in the first chapter that I wrote is actually the definition of the uh, value of the arts and cultural organization because everything is starting from the word value. Every kind of uh, um, value we teach and we we discuss is connected one versus the other. We have the identity value we have the economic value, we have the creative value, and we have the well-being value. So well, we had an example, I usually do this example, if, you, uh, if I can, is what happens in Notre Dame, the cathedral in Paris, okay? Identity value. Notre Dame de Paris, well, there was a disastrous occasion in April that, uh, um, in a way, gave voice this experience that is happening, uh, two, three different perspectives of the value of the cathedral. The first one is the identity value. So uh, culture creates identity. In a way, uh, culture is also a, a sort of a key driver for the development of a country, of a city. And uh, um, Notre Dame, when there was this, uh, this fire, was referred as uh, uh, an, an heritage site that belongs not to France, but to the entire humankind. Uh, it was a, a horrible event, very horrific, 
and uh, the president of the European Communion, European Union, Jean-Claude uh, Juncker, um, uh, said that uh, it was uh, the loss of something that doesn't belong only to France, but also to the uh, entire community. There is the second element, which is the economic value. Consider what happens in the Notre Dame. And you need to be confident with this. Notre Dame, there are people that visiting Notre Dame every single day, 30,000 visitors, with a, a, a ticket between 12 and 15 euro. It's easy to calculate the economic damage, this the economic value. There is also the creative value. Uh, it's the value that, uh, um, in a way, emphasizes uh, uh, the ability of cultural institution in order to be a sort of creative engine. How many elements were created based on the Notre Dame de Paris? Uh, what happens with Disney? So art can create something more. So a, a different way to see the same situation, uh, the creative value of the Notre Dame in the situation of the fire. And then we have the, uh, the final kind of value that is actually the, um, the well-being. Art is considered to be an element of showing the well-being of a country, of a territory. Because people that can afford enjoying, people that are surrounded by beauties is working better, is living better. In Canada, it's very famous, I think everybody knows, that doctors, the physical doctors in Canada, gave as a sort of medicine to people to go to museum. So they prescribe instead of medicine to go to museum because the impact of beauty can create relax in when we have we are stressed and so on. And this, which is actually the summary of the first chapter of the book, describe actually what is my goal. So asking the reader, the people that are interested in culture, to look at something with different perspectives. I think that's absolutely lovely. My takeaway on that is the impact of beauty. I think you've really just described all of the different perspectives that beauty has an impact on our lives. Um, I really enjoyed also your description of how La Scala survived sort of the, the absence of tourists and how the program was affected. Um, I have a theater background myself and uh, lots of my colleagues um, in the sector, obviously, I've been very deeply affected by the inability to be able to present live performances. I think that our, our lockdown measures were quite restrictive. Uh, we're only back up to 50% now. And even at the moment, there's still a sense with creatives that um, because so many, so many artists were so agile in taking their work online, um, many of our most famous um, South African choreographers and performers who were not well known at home necessarily have rediscovered the international audiences have had a much bigger reach because of the pivot towards, towards digitization. And uh, for the purists, for the ones who want to be on a, on a stage in front of an audience, there is this deep concern over whether we will ever reclaim that again and whether or not that's been sort of irrevocably damaged to some extent as a result of COVID. Um, I, I, I enjoyed reading an article in Harvard Magazine which explores this and it, it ran under the title, The Future of Theatre. And since we've talked about live performance now and considering the challenges of, of COVID and the fact 
that it has caused so many of us to pivot and rethink. Um, in terms of life performance from your perspective, how much of it do you think will continue to just be pure and just be live? Is everything going to be like we are at the moment, a hybrid of live and digital? Um, is that the easy way out until you know, we, we have herd immunity for the whole global population? What is your sense? What does the future of theatre look like? Live performance, anyway. Well, I'm not a purist, but I do think that there is nothing like being surrounded by music and listening to some music on present. I am president of a conservatory of music in Cremona. Cremona is a small, small city, 80,000 people, uh, near Milan, one hour and a half. And it's famous for the violin. There are hundreds of luthery violin makers. Uh, the education, everybody's playing music there. You are surrounded by music. When I started being the president of the conservatory, which is the highest level of degree in, in, in education of music, I realized that there were so many people that wanted to come to study in Cremona because of the violin, but not because there is the excellent professors for sure, but also because it was a place where, for example, there is a museum dedicated to the violin that was so important for the community that the mayor, there is an extraordinary mayor in, that town, in this town that considered that culture is the key aspect and creativity is the key aspect to reposition the city to win against the international community and to uh, create a proper identity. Just to tell you this, that uh, there is an engineer, sound engineering department in that museum that uh, help all the luthery, all the violin makers, there are hundreds that are coming from different parts of the world in that town, that uh, are creating violin brand new. You can buy a violin from Yamaha, big companies for, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000 euros, or even less. And then there is the handmade violin that are typically made in Cremona that cost 17, 20, and so on, because they are handmade. They want to reproduce the same sound of the Stradivari violin, the Amati violin, the very important and the historical one that are um, taking care in the... Um, uh, they are caretaking in the, in the violin museum. In that museum, there is this engineering sound department of the University of Milan that uh, help people, the violin maker, to reproduce the same sound of the Stradivari violin that cost millions of euros. Okay. So uh, they had to record the pure violin sound of a Stradivari, 1734, just to make an example of uh, uh, an old violin by Stradivari. In order to record, you need to have silence. It is so important this, that the mayor decided to block, completely block, freeze the traffic around the museum for two days in order to have a really 100% pure silence in order to record inside the acoustic chamber that is already uh, preventing the sound to be ruined, uh, in order to record this pure sound. And this is something that for a person that is living in a different city, in a different country, is considered to be a, a sort of uh, a madness because uh, uh, you had problems with the traffic, with the shops, uh, with the, the people that is living around. But for him, for the country, for the city, it was very important. And this uh, is an example of uh, how... Uh, 
the um, uh, this music, the the importance of the music and the importance of the pure music, uh, can be really really important. And for this reason, the CNN, New York Times, important newspapers around the world wrote about that small uh, city in Italy because of this project. And they have never reached the resonance worldwide without this. So coming to your questions, obviously the performance life is completely different and we need to go back in that situation for sure. Otherwise the experience is not the same. What is very important anyway, is that uh, we are assisting in the year of COVID of, uh, uh, we're assisting to a sort of natural uh, selection of institutions that uh, are resilient to the market changes, find out a different way of supporting, sustaining, uh, uh, changing the business model, preserving the authenticity of the live performance and the institutions that are simply waiting for the pandemic to pass, hoping that in the future, everything will be as well, uh, to get the same as before. And this is another mistake because uh, uh, also culture change, time change. There are critical incidents like pandemic that uh, uh, oblige people. My grandmother is 97. She had to be uh, not familiar completely, but to use the Zoom, to use the FaceTime. Otherwise, it's not possible to see the nephews, the grandchildren around uh, because we had not the possibility to come to, come to meet her. These are changes that the cultural institution needs to take into consideration. Otherwise, if you simply wait for things to change and you are not proactive, you are going to lose. There is another element very important in the theater particularly. Uh, we have a true situation, a fund, a funding system based on uh, um, cultural policy. So the state is supporting the art with funds. This is typical in Europe. And situation, so orientation to the art in this case is easy because you have the ministry that at the end or the endowment of the art, whatever, that gives the money for you to maintain your theater for the fixed cost. Or there are situations, US, where everything is led by the market. If you don't have funds, if you don't have a sponsor, you are going to die. In the pandemic, where you cannot perform, therefore you cannot offer to the sponsor what they are paying for, it happened also in the Met, in the museum. They had to sell their work of art because they are depending completely on the private. In Italy, for example, that has always been considered like an, an example, a, a bad example of managing the art because there are no orientation to the market, there are no management orientation. But because we have a system where culture, in a way, is, is not considered important if you see the amount of GDP produced by the sector, but the theater have a support from the state. They could afford 2019, 2020, and also 2021 to maintain, to keep the same amount of money coming from the ministry. That, of course, is not all, they cannot um, uh, have the money coming from the ticket office, but at least they can survive. So the future of the theater is, on my side, being able to be reactive versus a new kind of customer. Consider in the past, in, 19, in the 19th century, La Scala, we mentioned La Scala, 
you know, there, are this, there is the stage, there are the, the floor, and then there are the boxes. Nowadays, if you are down in the, in the, the floor part, it's more expensive because la platea is very expensive. More expensive than the stalls, the boxes, okay? In the past, because the theater, the, the traditional Italian theater were owned by families, the subscriber, they owned different boxes. The important rich people owned their own box and the people that couldn't afford the boxes had to go in the stage, down in the floor. This means that it is the opposite of what happens now. If you don't have enough money, you go up and down instead is more expensive. And this happened in 200 years. And probably 200 years ago, it was something completely out of the world to think about that. So there is a complete change, but if you don't, we go back to the management process, analysis, strategy, and performance. If you don't go back to the analysis, and if you don't analyze deeply with qualitative method, quantitative method, how culture is changing and is shaping our behavior of consumer, user, visitor, whatever, you will not be able to react. What a lovely answer. Um, it, it, it reminds me somewhat of a conversation I had with a colleague at a peer just yesterday. I'm often troubled with my back and I visit a chiropractor. And what she shared with me is that um, very often when patients come to her, they'll say that they have a general back problem, but they're unable to say whether it's mid back, lower back, whether it's a problem with the glutes. Um, and in my time with her, she's taught me to diagnose, to localize where the problem is so that it can then be addressed and fixed. And I was saying to my friend, to me with a Y, um, who is one of the curators uh, on the assembly stream, that um, for me, the pandemic in some sense is like this. It's, it's like, it's not just a, a disease which has hit nations and individuals. It's, it's hit the sector. And in terms of being able to move past it, it feels like, and certainly assembly is proposed as that kind of exercise to start to try and understand and diagnose what it is that is wrong with our sector locally to try and understand where the creative sector is globally. Um, and I, I think that you've sketched that research can help us identify um, the, the processes that you've sketched are key in terms of, as opposed to just rushing around wildly and doing things, to take a step back, to really analyze, to diagnose, to take a step back and propose future directions. Um, ha to some degree, Artstrack number nine, which we will be launching as part of, uh, as part of this, this inaugural assembly, touches on some of the impact of COVID uh, and the pandemic on the creative sector globally. Are you aware of any other research or insights in terms of what, what, what the overall impact has been of the pandemic on the creative sector globally, on the creative economy as a whole? Well, the impact, I mean, there are a lot of uh, research that put together the different countries. My personal, but this is really something as a personal researcher, have you, my perspective is that uh, you can consider what happens worldwide, but the cultural policy is so different in different states and different countries that you cannot uh, consider to develop a proper strategy without uh, concentrating on something. So uh, what I think is very relevant in your project is that it's based in South Africa. So it's very clear. 
because it's useless to keep on considering the best practice or the benchmark, what happens in the US or what happens in Europe or what happens in Germany or what happens in Australia or in India. There are different situations. Italy has a problem, endemic problem in managing the archaeology because there are a huge amount of heritage sites and the state cannot afford taking care of them. The Teatro di Tradizione, the traditional, in Italy we have two kinds of theater, opera theater. The big one, Maggio Fiorentino, Teatro dell'Opera di Roma, Petrucelli di Bari, Scala, Comuna di Bologna. There are foundation. And then there are 87 small theater that are not individual theater, are owned by the state typically through a foundation. Well, are not by the state owned, but they are uh, owned by a foundation that is getting the money from the state. And the state is giving the most important amount amount to them that uh, were born in a situation where uh, it was necessary to have a theater there. But nowadays a theater can survive only if it opens no more than two days a week because the fixed costs are too high. But this is different compared to what happens in another situation where probably, for example, in Italy, you have artists that uh, are not uh, uh, supported by the state if you are, they are individual. So the amount of money that the state is giving to theater not necessarily is going to the, the artists that were, uh, uh, had canceled their performances due to COVID. If they had already signed the contract, they, they, the theater paid. Otherwise, they wouldn't have received anything, and therefore, the support is not arriving to that. Uh, in U.S., you, usually we, we, use, we usually consider uh, U.S. as a, a best practice in terms of the pureness of sound, the importance of the um, uh, orchestra that gather the most important musicians in the world because they pay 10 times what they are getting in Italy or in France. But why they get so much money? Because they are the private sector that is giving so much money there. But why the private sector there is not? Because they are more generous than Italian. Because they, in the US, if you give money to the arts and culture, you can deduce it completely from your tax income. And this is not what happens in Italy. But on the other side, due to COVID, the sponsors that are looking for something back because it's an agreement, it's a commercial agreement, they don't see any kind of performance. They stop pouring money to the theater. In Italy, the sponsors are not so much present and they are not giving money in this situation, but there is the state. So every single country is different. And uh, in terms of research, my suggestion is to uh, start uh, or contribute, not start because you are not starting from scratch, contribute in the data orientation. So the importance of collecting data properly can be quantitative data, but can also be qualitative data. The impressions, the state of mind, understanding what is in the mind of the, 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 the what is the culture that is influencing. For example, what happens in the community of artists uh, in respect of what happened with Nike, and that artist. Did the artist approve it or they consider it a sort of uh, uh, discount sale of an artistic product to the big international multinational company? This is useful to help building the knowledge. And obviously all this that I said today is with a deep, deep, deep respect of somebody that really started with the idea of being an artist, a musician, a curator that uh, couldn't, and that uh, 
wants to give support, help to the artistic sector. I would like to have the artists free to decide what they want based on empirical evidence of the results. So I don't want to uh, bind the artists, the musicians. You have a wonderful festival in, in South Africa. Uh, and the, 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 the essence of the festival are festivals that are created by somebody that most of the time wants to create. They don't want to be uh, you know, put in, in blocks of uh, uh, figures and numbers. So you need to have people like me, like people that study management, that help the artist in a performance that is actually not only efficient, but also effective. Thank you, Prof, for your insight, you. anecdotes. I think you do an amazing amount. You are a wealth of knowledge. And I think everything that you've shared is a fantastic provocation for two days of further talks, panel discussions. Uh, so our deepest gratitude. Thank you very much. That brings us Thank to a you. We'll keep on chatting. Grazie, grazie mille. Mille grazie. Ciao. Ciao, Cari. So let me know if I can help you in some other ways. It's very interesting. And let me know if you have evidence of your research, because we can also... Okay. We'll share the new research with you for sure. It's really lovely just listening to you. I'm going to cut all of me out and put the questions. I was just mesmerized listening to you. Uh, you're a really great storyteller as well. The artist in your shows up so much. <laughs> Ciao, Cari. Grazie. Talking about this lovely festival. I used to work for that festival before I was here. Thank you. I think we're Grazie. good. Thank you, Albi. Thank you, Albi, Rochelle, and Savannah. Ciao, Karim.